Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Mighty Eighth Podcast with me, Johan Tusker, and military historian Mike Peters. In this episode, we've come to Parham Airfield Museum in Suffolk in the east of England. And this is a, an airfield museum which was Station 153 Framlingham, and it's dedicated to the 390th Bomb Group, although the 95th Bomb Group was here initially for a couple of months in 1943. Mike, we're standing outside the control tower. It's, um, well, it's a slightly windy October day, but it's wonderfully restored, isn't it? It's amazing, and the volunteers here have done a great job on uh, on Parham, as they say here, not not Parham as, or Parham, as an American might say. But um, as you say, it's a, it's a windy old day in October in rural Suffolk, and, and yet the volunteers are here when we arrive, painting the railings and preserving the place and working to maintain the memory of the 390th and all the other aviators who flew from here. It's a really evocative place, and it's probably, you know, in the top three, I think, bomb group museums in East Anglia, without without a doubt. We won't ask what the other two of the t- <laughs> your top well, yeah, three are. We'll go to those. But, uh, yeah, yeah, but I'm sure we'll visit them. In this episode, Mike, we're going to talk about, uh, well, this airfield, this would have been home at its peak to four squadrons of B-17 flying fortresses. And what we're going to talk about in this episode is how do you get all of those planes at its peak, about 72 B-17s, how do you get all of those planes from the ground into the air, into a, a fighting force ready to go on the bombing mission? Yeah, we are. And the first thing I'm going to say to you is 72 is the absolute peak of the strength here at, at uh, Parham, Framlingham. 
I mean, they're, they're not all going to be flying. A, a number of them are going to be damaged and under repair. Some of them are going to be under deep servicing in the T2 hangars that have been, been maintained, etc. Uh, so the paper strength is not what's going to take to the air. And usually, a third of the strength is not going to be flying. It's going to be maintained or, or under repair, or, you know, in some, on some pretty dark days, shot down and not coming back and need to be replaced. So there's, there's all that pulse of the air. But we're going to talk about the anatomy of a, of a, of a mission. Those aircraft don't just all suddenly appear in the sky. They've got to be that mission's got to be formatted. It's got the target's got to be selected. The intelligence, the the met forecast, the weather, how does that affect it? The crewing of the aircraft, the bomb loads, the fuel, all of that's got to be choreographed together to get those lined up on the airfield, crewed, fueled, bombed, ready to go into the air, going to the right place at the right time to meet one of the other 100 plus bomb groups that are scattered around East Anglia going out towards their target. Right, let's go in and uh, find out how it was done. So, Mike, we've come into the museum. We're standing in the entrance hall just inside the doorway. And on the wall, there's a, an information panel about the 390th bomb group. Yeah, and it, it's, it tells its, its story, and, it, and it's a classic story. It is one of the later bomb groups, but it's part of the 3rd Air Division, and you can recognise them from all the photographs you see on the tail. They've got a square symbol. Whatever letter it is, it is in a square. And it's either the 1st Air Division is a triangle, 2nd Air Division is a circle. So they are uh, the square J. We've got the station number. We, we, we know we're at Framlingham, Parham. Uh, you've got the 390th, which is comprises of four squadrons, the 568th, the 569th, the 570th and the 571st. For most of the war, they would have been at 12 aircraft per squadron. And if you are involved in generating those aircraft or flying those aircraft to the target, you, you fly in elements of three, flights of six, squadrons of 12, and then you take your four squadrons and they make a group. Although, you know, at the end of the war, 75 serviceable aircraft here are on the dispersal. The 390th group would be um, on one airfield, and that's the way the Americans go about it. It always makes absolute sense, very different to the way the Air Force are doing it, the Royal Air Force. And then three groups make up a combat wing, and then three to five combat wings make up an air division, and there are three of those, and, and they all belong to 8th Air Force Bomber Command. And we, we talk a lot about the 8th Air Force, and I had a couple of emails from people saying, don't forget the 9th, don't forget the 12th, don't forget the 15th, and we, we're not, but we are here to talk about the 8th. Well, let's turn back to the, uh, the 390th with their square J here at Parham. In the whole time they're here, which is from July 43 to the end of the war, 275 B-17s are allocated to this bomb group. And here's the maths for you. So they fly over that time 301 daylight raids and drop 19,059 tonnes of ordnance. But to do that, the cost of doing that, they lose 145 aircraft, 145 B-17s missing in action and another 17 which crash landing in the UK and that generates a horrendous butcher's bill of 742 aircrew killed or missing in action and 731 who were taken prisoner by the, by the Germans. That's a hell of a record and um, they're credited with destroying 377 enemy aircraft. We'll, we'll take that with a pinch of salt because of the usual confusion about different aircraft and different gunners firing at aircraft. But they get two notable distinguished unit citations and uh, one for Schweinfurt on the 14th of October and one for the Regensburg mission before that in August 1943 to the biggest and costliest raids of, of the war for the 8th Air Force. And they also have a number of memorable uh, highlights. They are credited with destroying the most German aircraft in one mission when they claimed 62 enemy aircraft 
on the radar monster on the 10th of October 1943, the highest ever recorded by a single bomb group. And uh, maybe this guy could tell us if he was alive a bit more about it. That's Sergeant Hewitt Dunn, who is the first and only man in the 8th Air Force to fly 100 missions and survive. You know, that, that's quite an achievement when you think of the life expectancy of somebody to fly 25 missions is one in four chance that you're going to survive. He's done it four times over at the start, so that's quite an achievement. So quite a distinguished bomb group, and uh, part of a heraldic plaque for the bomb group shows Framingham Castle. No, no doubting where they, they are. And a lot of the artwork you see about the 390th talk illustrates B-17s over Framingham Castle, which is more uh, linked to Ed Sheeran these days. But uh, for them... That was their final turning point, their final visual identification marker to find the airfield on the ground was, was Fram Castle. They knew when they saw Framling Castle that they were almost home. Almost. And as we know, a lot of guys died on the runway, so they're not quite home. But yeah, at least you know you're in the right place. You're, in, you're almost on your home airfield. So it must be quite a sight to see Framling Castle. Cause it's not a very big, tall castle, but to see that circular castle on the hill, you're thinking, right, I'm, I'm, I'm almost there. So that gives us some background then. Let's go upstairs and find out how they got all these planes in the air. Yeah, let's do that. You're listening to the Mighty Eights podcast with me, Johan Tasker, a military historian, Mike Peters. In this episode, we're looking at the anatomy of a bombing mission. And we've come now to the main flying control room on the first floor of the control tower. Mike, this is a, a really, really important room. It is. It's the day-to-day heartbeat of the airfield. So rather than the operations centre where missions are being planned and intelligence is being gathered together and all of that sort of information, this is day-to-day running. So when airfields are flying off on uh, air tests or training missions, etc., or mounting for a raid, uh, just a general, in-the-moment, day-to-day running of the airfield, even down to what aircraft is on what stand and where it is on the airfield. All of that's being coordinated here, as is the weather office, which is taking observations from the airfield on wind speed, etc., and feeding that into a central command system. So a weather picture is being built up across the 8th Air Force Bomber Command and collated together as well. So we've got the, the, the weather office in here. We've got the airfield lighting control panel and the runway indicator map as well. All of that, uh, and also the, the communication cell that's in here, the radio room is in here as well to talk to aircraft approaching. Because we've talked about it a lot, but there's so many different bomber and fighter groups around East Anglia and all of the UK that you're literally tripping over them. So if you're a pilot, you need every bit of help you can get to identify your airfield, your home airfield, that where you're trying to get to. And this, this place is manned 24-7. There'll be a watch officer in charge who's going to do the air traffic control, manage the runway, who's on the runway. If there's a crash, it's going to be coordinated from here, releasing the, the, the fire engines and ambulance and rescue crews. That's all going to be done from here. Launching a raid. This is the final point where the flares are fired for to launch the raid. Everyone knows they're going to go. Uh, and really, this is where the first indication of the bomb group returning to its airfield from a raid is going to be received into, into this, this position here. So it really is at the centre of everything. So an important place in terms of the day-to-day running of the airfield, but also in terms of the raid, the mission itself. Yeah, well, let's, um, let's step outside this building. Let's go somewhere else on the airfield, metaphorically, to do that, because a raid is generated from 8th Air Force Bomber Command. That's, that's where the target is selected from. That's, in, that's at a strategic level, that's 
uh, is it a transport plan? Is it the oil plan? What are we bombing ball bearings in Swineford? Are we bombing the Schmidt factory in Regenberg? Regenberg? What are we? What's the target? Uh, that's then all pulled together by the operations officer at Bomber Command, 8th Bomber Command, as, and then issued out to the bomb groups that have been selected to mount the raid via division and combat wing to say, here is what's called a field order. The field order is is the is the Bible. That's This is what we're doing. This is the target. This is what time we need to be on there. This is how we're going to assemble. The fighters are going to come from. What the flak's going to be. What the enemy fighter are. It's all in the field order and that'll be received on the airfield generally by teleprinter sometimes by physical messenger but generally it comes out in teleprinter usually 36 24 hours before a normal mission i nearly said routine there's nothing routine about these so that comes in into the operations center the commanding officer is summoned straight away we've got a field order and then he looks at the field order and has to assess okay is it all, all of our squadrons is it half the squadrons where is, is the whole group going what does that mean? Immediately, and different bomb groups do it different ways, a red flag goes up, red lights go on in the bar and all these different places, and an indication goes out to the squadrons, a warning order, field order received, no one goes out to London or Ipswich or wherever they're going to go. Everyone's gated. Supposedly, if you're flying, no drinking. So everyone knows straight away something's going to happen. So it's a lockdown situation. Yes, it, it is a lockdown situation because the, suddenly the normal routine training tempo of the station switches to operational focus, mission in the pipeline. So once the mission is on and the initial warning order's gone out, everybody knows it's going to happen. Attention rapidly focuses on accelerating the generation of more aircraft for the mechanics, the spares, all, all focused on the aircraft that can be got ready to go on the mission. In the operations centre, the, the commanding officer is going to delegate his tasks. The intelligence section, they, they will go into secure area and pull out the target pack. The held is a set in a central store. Everyone's got the same photographs, maps, intelligence briefs, etc. They're being updated all the time. That'll have the flak plan on, the route they're going to take, etc. will be decided by that. What's around the target, what's on route, etc. The weather forecast at the home stations... What's the forecast in transit to the target? The time's predicted. What's the, fo- what's the forecast over the target? Because if you've got no visibility, particularly early in the war, you need to be able to see the target to hit it accurately. And the big thing about daylight precision bombing is it's supposed to be precision bombing. So you need to see the target with your Norden bomb site to be able to hit it. And then you also need, need to know that the weather is viable on the way back and that there is good weather over the airfields for people to land after the mission. Then what is the target? What is the bomb load? What kind of bombs are we going to use on the target? Is it a mix or one type? You know, are we bombing submarine pens, which are all concrete? Are we bombing factory buildings? So that needs to be worked into the plan. A lot of people might be oblivious. You hear lots of stories about um, aircrew who are away on leave in London or wherever, and they have a little code on the phone, on the landline, where they phone up and say, is the baseball game on tomorrow? And the squadron or the officer will say, yeah, there's a game tomorrow, you need, to, you need to come back. So they know, veiled speech as we used to call it, so they know they've got to be back for, for the raid. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an expectancy, people know it's on. And um, once the field order has been digested by the officer, it will come here as well into the airfield control tower because they know how many squadrons are flying, what order they're taking off. So it's been decided by the operations cell what order the squadrons are going to fly who's going to form what position in what combat box and where that combat box in the air sits in the big plan of the air divisional plan where you're going to meet up with your wing, with your division 
and where you fit in the plan. And then you've got to work out, work your time back. How long is that flying transit? How long does it take to assemble? How long does it take to get to the rendezvous point to meet up with the other bomb groups and, and the wings and, and then to form into this big formation without burning too much fuel? Because you want all that fuel as much as you can to get to the target and get back. So there's a, there's a lot of choreography to be done here, but it can't be done by the crews. They're just flying their aircraft. They, they, they get there from the, their briefing. They get the, the headings, the heights, etc. that they need to know. But the plan needs to be quite concrete by then as to how it's all going to work and what we're going to be. Meanwhile, the old ground crew, they've got their jobs to do. The armourers are preparing the bombs, the weapons guys are sorting out the machine guns, the ammunition, the gunners are taking a close interest in all of that, what's happening there. Uh, the navigators are going to navigators briefings in the uh, ops- operations room, the lead navigators for each squadron, they know what's going on. But the majority of crew, and certainly the ground crew, have no idea what the target is. But, but if you've been around for a few missions, you can work out by the fuel load how far it possibly it's going to be um, so the crew chiefs out on the hard standings are working their mechanics and they are going to ultimately generate a serviceable aircraft hopefully and then they'll they'll want to know where does it need to be in the line and line of takeoff because to build that formation in the air you help yourself a lot by all taking off in the right sequence by by squadron to form the group by and then within that by flight and then within that within elements so are you number one in the takeoff line or are you number 12 and that can be done by ground taxi and it's not always done by the air crew crew chiefs can ground taxi the aircraft can do that so they're going to do it. so everyone's working flat out to generate a serviceable b17 or b24 with the right fuel with the right ammunition with all serviceable guns with the right bomb load and with the oxygen system working, with everything as optimally as optimum state as it, it could possibly be to give that crew a fighting chance of achieving their aim, but the crews still don't know where they're going. So the the red lights on. Everybody's focused on the mission. The crews at this stage still don't know where they're going, but they know that something's afoot. They know that they're going to be going somewhere. They're going to be in the barracks, writing letters, probably with a hint that something's happening. And then they're going to go to bed. Yeah, they are. And some quite vivid accounts of this where guys talk about, uh, they know something's afoot because this military police have suddenly st- appeared outside the operations room in the briefing room and uh, red flag, red light in the bar, you're not supposed to drink, etc. And you know generally that means a really early start. So there's a lot of sorting out your own personal affairs. Some guys are just ignoring it, playing music, having a chat, etc. Some guys don't sleep. Other guys are writing letters, you know, especially guys right at the start are asking lots of nervous questions, but others are not talking about it. And you, you've got to try and get some sleep because flying at altitude is, is tiring. Flying is generally tiring. Um, so if you've got any sense, you've got to try and sleep. One of the fantastic things about Parham Air Museum is that there's an actual Nissan hut here with reconstructed living quarters inside where we can go and see exactly where the air crew slept let's go and have a look everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule it's surprisingly affordable too connect with a credentialed therapist by phone video or online chat 
all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the Mighty Eighth podcast with me, Johan Tasker, and military historian Mike Peters. We've come now into what is an original barrack hut from the 571st Squadron area, which has been donated to the museum by John Gray of Moat Farm. This was moved and then assembled here by volunteers, and it's the recreation of the living quarters for the aircrew that would have been stationed here, and I thoroughly recommend... I mean, Mike, this is fantastic, isn't it? Anybody that comes here cannot fail to be wowed by this. They've done a really, really good job. They certainly have, and rather than stand at the end and look in, you you can walk in and stand at the bottom of the beds and, and, and see all, all the exhibits. And it, it's been so well done, I mean, down to the little coal fire, the, 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 there are beds, the gramophone, uh, ward, a rack for people with uniforms hanging on, etc., a radio, um, the foot lockers, the old, even the genuine issue blankets. It's all absolutely as would have been. So you really do get a feel of what it's like to live in this environment. I, I lived in a Nissan hut in Cyprus, did a UN tour in the heat of Cyprus in the middle of the summer, which was not brilliant. These guys have got the opposite extreme there. In the winter, you know, they're, they're struggling to keep warm. And nearly every individual memoir talks about keeping that little stove fed with coal or wood or whatever they can find from around the earth. And, and that's the most prevalent crime is theft of coal from around different airfields or, or farm locations around the airfield itself because the guys are just desperate to keep warm. It's a little bit of home, you know, if you look on the wall or the pinups of the day, reading material, etc. And you can imagine the, the feeling of community being in here. The, the whole crew doesn't sleep in one Nissan hut. It, it's the officers sleep in one Nissan hut and the, the enlisted guys live in another one. They come together as they go out to the briefing or every time they go to fly. But you, you're going to know the guy. I mean, how far are those beds apart? You know, and they're a couple of feet. Yeah, two foot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and living in that environment, you soon get to know whether you like or dislike the person who's in the next bed and you have to get on. So there's, there's going to be a, a lot of that going on. And um, when the mission starts, when the field order's been received and you're being woken, it's going to be, what, three o'clock in the morning, somebody comes in and you're going to hear that Jeep drive up or that bicycle being leaned against the side of the building outside and you know what's coming because you're you're half awake anyway someone's going to wake you up and shine a torch in your, in your face and say you're flying today you're on a mission you know what, what time the brief is the reason for three o'clock in the morning is because you've got to get ready you've got to start getting ready five hours before takeoff yeah depending on the on the on the target and the distance to the target and what time the target's going to be hit and of course the weather there's a window of opportunities for you to, 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 to do the raid and everyone who's planned it who's been in the operations centre those those people who are the, from the commanding officer down who are involved in planning the raid they've worked back from zero hour when takeoff is and when time on target is and then you work back from takeoff again it's what time do you need to brief the crews so what time do they need to feed what time do they need to be woken up all the way back to that point and that the point of that plan the spear point of that plan is the guy coming through the door waking you up and telling you you're on. 
And if we walk down to the other end of the Nissan hut, we've got a sort of a washroom area, showers, sink, much as it would have been. Very much, yeah. And it's another great bit of accurate history done by, by the 390th Museum. It's so good. And there's a couple of photographs here. And uh, it's pretty rudimentary, isn't it? It's pretty agricultural. I mean, you'd recognise that. And it's still got pinups on the wall. But the little things about life in this period that we, we take for granted now, outside losing houses, no hot running water, etc. So you, you're not going to get that. And all the guys talk about who come from America, come from the States to, to be here to fight... They all talk about their vivid memories of the austere conditions of living in this environment. And this shower is inside the museum, is next to the, the bunk beds and the beds of the sleeping area. But it wouldn't be for real. It's outside, it's a separate building. And there are different ones around the airfields. So you've got to trek across there in the bleak midwinter or whatever, or if you want to go to the loo or whatever. It's all part of the fabric of, of existing and surviving in rural East Anglia in the winter of 43, 44 and into 45, which is some pretty grim winters, actually. So it's a real factor. Not only would they have a shower, they've got to have a shave. And I didn't realise this, but the reason that they would shave is because they're going to be flying 20, 25,000 feet in the air, wearing oxygen masks, and those oxygen masks have to fit. So you've got to be clean-shaven to ensure a tight fit for your oxygen mask. Yeah, and that was even the thinking until very recently about um, NBC, nuclear gas masks, people in modern warfare. And it is a real problem, it is a real factor because, again, mission after mission, you read about oxygen checks where the radio operator or someone nominated in the crew, usually the radio operator, would be asking around the crew, check in, check in, check in. Because if, if the seal fails or the oxygen system fails, you can pass out very quickly and be unconscious and, and, and die. So um, taking a shave is one of those very basic precautions you do to make sure you've got a good seal on that mask. Getting ready to go to work, to go to the office. You, and those oxygen checks would take place every 15 minutes throughout the mission. That's right, unless you were otherwise occupied at the height of battle. But yeah, certainly that, that check-in was important. And usually the radio, radio operator would be, if you didn't hear from him, he's the guy who's got to go and find that person, get to that crew position and check that you've got uh, oxygen or it's not just a, a comms failure, but they need to know because you, you can lose your crew member like that very, very quickly. So first you'd go unconscious uh, very quickly after yeah. that lack of oxygen, you're, you're going to die. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Simple as, yeah. I mean, it's a re- it, and we, we talk about the fighters, we talk about the flak, you know, but mechanical failure, oxygen failure, you know, all of these things, just poor navigation, poor flight, the weather again, you know, all of these things can kill you. So the figures mount up, but it's, it's not always the Messerschmitt that gets you. It's these, all of these other things. So you can see why people are in that mentality of, I've got to live for today. All, all these odds are against me. And if you're at the start of that mission cycle, 25, 30 or 35 missions, the odds are against you getting to the end. And not only is it the lack of oxygen that's going to kill you, it's, it's the cold as well. And if yeah. we look in here, there are sheepskin jackets, trousers or pants and a lot of the clothes that uh, the aircrew were going to wear would be heated as well, almost like an electric blanket. Yeah, and, you know, it's so good to be able to just walk around and, and see these items just laid out on the bed and look at them and, and, and get, a, get an understanding of what they look like and how, 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 uh, how they were worn. So, you know, if you think about it, layers make a huge difference. And, yes, they're fur-lined, etc. But one of the problems that the um, 8th Air Force encountered early on in the war 
was when they were doing that, that hanging around, waiting for a mission to to go. And guys, were, you see it in the film Memphis Bell where they decide to play baseball uh, in their flying clothing. And one of the things they wear are the fur-lined boots. And when they they find is that uh, if they're even walking in the long distances out to the stands of the aircraft or they play baseball or whatever they do, if you if your feet sweat, and they will if you're not in the aircraft at altitude, you start putting all these layers on, you will sweat. That when you get to altitude, that moisture in your boots will freeze. So very on the early missions, a lot of guys come back with frostbite in their feet, and yet they've been fully clothed head to toe, and they rap- rapidly work out that the, the reason for this is sweat in the boots. So you get this thing about crews being driven out to their aircraft. Why is that? They're being pampered, and it's not that. It, it's it's to prevent that happening. So they're, they're not sweating. They're not going to get frostbite. They're not tired, unnecessarily tired. You're trying to deliver those crews with the maximum sleep, which is given what we've just said about waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning is difficult to achieve but refreshed in the best possible physical and mental shape to fly that mission fight that aircraft and survive now if you're going on a mission breakfast was a very special thing you'd have fresh eggs rather than powdered eggs for breakfast yeah i mean both royal air force and u.s army air force crews talk about this about uh, you knew it was going to be a really stiff job or a really difficult mission if if all this nice fresh food appeared for breakfast and and a lot of guys didn't have the appetite for it because they were so nervous or the tension of going on a mission but they knew they had to eat because it's many many hours especially if it was delayed for takeoff for example you needed to have that and and that's part of being fit for the job so uh, on some of the milk runs is they still got powdered eggs depending on the airfield where you where you were and availability what the quartermaster could provide but if you got proper fresh fried eggs for or scrambled eggs you knew this was a biggie it was going to be when that curtain came back it was not going to be a, a nice surprise behind it and when you say when the curtain came back that's in the briefing room yeah. where the air crew would be would be sitting mm-hmm. and the the map at the front of the briefing room would have a curtain across it and they would draw back the curtain yeah. and show you where you were going to be going. Yeah, it's part of the drama of the whole mission cycle. You know, It's all very secret until until the, the mission briefing starts because, you know, even the best German spy is not going to find out what's going on in that short space of time. But there's great drama in that where smoke-filled rooms, everyone's smoking in those days. And you read all these, Comer's account for the 381st is particularly good. He talks about the, everyone being sat in there, having had their breakfast either, depending where they are in the mission's list of how many missions they've done how they're feeling about it whether they're confident used to it or that it's their first mission the nervousness around that there's all that all those different emotions at play and then there's the stand up everyone stands to attention in walks the commanding officer with the operations officer the intelligence officer and all, all these guys and probably the chaplain as well and um, in they come to the front and it's gentlemen this is where you're going back comes the curtain and the map of Europe is there from your point of origin, in this case where we are now near outside Framlingham at Perham, with a, a ribbon going across the map to where the target is. And the length of the mirror, the ribbon, reflects how deep into German airspace you're going to fly and how, how rough a ride you're going to get. Or if, maybe it's going to go into Germany, then south to North Africa or, or wherever. So uh, it, you, you, you hear about these great groans or... Uh, expletives when they see it's, it's the big B, it's Berlin, or it's another Schweinfurt, or or something like that, or like a suppressed sigh of relief when it's it's Rouen or Lille or a milk run on the on the Normandy coast, for example, uh, with, with little little prospect of fighter opposition. But if it's a Regensburg or a Schweinfurt, there's, there's a big furore, and oh god, not again. 
So it, it, it is a moment of drama. And the chaplain would be there not just for moral support, but because literally this is a life or death situation. If you're a Roman Catholic and there's a, a Catholic priest there, you'd be perhaps able to have Holy Communion. He might give you a conditional absolution. If you're a, a, if you're a Protestant, you'd probably get a handshake and a prayer. But this is serious life or death. It is, and um, the chaplain's present presence is important. Let's, let's, we're looking through the, the 2020 hindsight here. We're applying 21st century values and beliefs on religion back to a time of 1943-44, where people are a lot more religious. And certainly America, rural America, is very religious. So they, it's, it's an important component of, of fighting the war. Um, so they, they want that. And, and, and often in some of the bomb groups, they talk about the chaplain standing at the, at the head of the briefing and blessing everyone before they go. And the chaplain being in the watch office on the control tower, sweating out the mission with everyone else. So uh, and blessing aircraft before each one as it takes off at the end of the runway. So you can see it's a real component. And as that old saying, there's, there's no such thing as an atheist on the battlefield. You know, and if you're one of those guys on the 24th or 30, 29th mission that you've got one more to do. Yeah, maybe a, anything anything helps, doesn't it? You, you'll take anything you can get. Mike, we're going to come back into the barracks area a little later on. But for now, let's go up to the watchtower and take a look across the airfield and see what would have been happening. You're listening to the Mighty Eighth Podcast with me, Johan Tasker, and military historian Mike Peters. In this episode, we're discovering how you get a bomb group from the ground and into the air as a fully-fledged fighting force. Mike, we're now in the watch office at the top of the control tower. It's a real privilege to be in here on our own. There are a couple of telephones here. There's lots of uh, dials. What exactly are we looking at? Johan, this is, this is the... The controller's position. So that if, if you look around, we can see the whole airfield from here. And that, that's the whole point of having this watch office on top of the, of the tower and the control building. So downstairs, when we're doing the airfield control room, that's where the radios are, all of that. This is, up here, is the person who's got physical control of the airfield and is, is running that airfield. And to do that, they've got red telephone to the crash for the fire, fire service to come out and rescue uh, downed air crew, medical uh, ambulance station, etc., probably a, that telephone there to the ops room we've got radio speakers we can read the wind speed in here from the instruments outside and the wind direction so uh, and the temperature so we can talk to air crew as they're approaching so our pilots calling up saying I'm coming in and they've got a choice of three runways to land on I mean the main runway here is runway 28 or, or 10 so you're landing on a heading of 280 or 10 on the compass and that depends on wind direction because you need to land into wind and take off into wind to get more airflow over your wings and this is, this is the standard A-class runway system? Yes, that's correct. And uh, you, the triangle, there's one long leg, which is the main runway, which is 6,000-plus uh, feet long. And then the two shorter ones are, are both 4,400. And then around that is the perimeter track and taxiways and the stands, which disperse the aircraft around the site. And you can see all of that from here and control that. And there's things like vehicle traffic moving around. You know, we've got flare store outside for the flares for this place. We've got the fire station, uh, all the things that are key to maintaining the, 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 the pulse of the airfield are all run from here. So at this stage in the raid, then, the aircrew are all in the planes. What happens next? Well, the aircrew have, have 
been called forward. They've got out to their aircraft. They know from the briefing that they've had in, uh, in the main briefing that uh, what time to be in their aircraft, what time to start their, start their engines and warm them up, what time the first aircraft takes off and what the interval is. All that, all that pent-up, ready-to-go, all that information is all watched over from here. And there's going to be no radio communications because they worked out very early in, in, the, in the bombing campaign that the Germans could monitor radio comms. So everything's done on radio silence. So it's got to be done by time. So any change is going to be communicated by a guy whizzing around in a Jeep or on a motorcycle to say there's been a change. Zero hour is now two hours delayed, one hour, 30 minutes, whatever it's going to be. So everyone's waiting for the indication, right, it's on. And that's usually up by flare and or raising your flag from the, from this location, hence the flare store next door, because the flares perform multi-functions around the airfield for everyone. Uh, so if you were looking out the window here on, on the day of one of the missions, you'd see the main runway would be absolutely clear. But the, the perimeter track, and there's some quite good photographs here at the museum, if we were looking out, out of the window here, now on, on a raid day, the perimeter track would just be just in front of us now, and you'd see, well, yeah, nose to tail, B-17s lined up, so the tail tail gunner position of the forward aircraft with the, with the cut would be right almost in the nose of the aircraft behind it. And there in that order I spoke about earlier where the crew chiefs and the ground crew have, have got them in the right order to take off by elements, by flight, by squadron, uh, by group. So you've got four squadrons of 12 planes making up the bomb group. That's 48 planes at the end of the runway, all getting ready to go, all going into the air, four engines Per plane. That's almost 200 engines. The noise must have been absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be great to just be stood here and, and listen to that now? I mean, we, we, we listen to one B-17 now or even one single-engine fighter and then it's so evocative, so emotive a sound. Imagine being here on the day and looking at the photographs just outside in front of us would have been a whole row of B-17s. And when they all start to crank up one engine at a time... It would be noisy, the coughing, the spluttering. Then that would build up until everyone's got two, three, four engines, until the whole, everybody has got the, all four engines running. And, you know, when you go on a working airfield, the, the first thing that hits you is not just the noise, it's the smell of the fuel and the exhaust fumes. And that would be phenomenal here today. That would be a cacophony of noise, all the different smells. And if we're here in a watch office, we'd be watching it all go on, the tension getting the flares ready to fire to launch everyone or use the oldest lamp maybe the telephone would be ringing everyone would be, would be probably the commanding officer who's not flying the planning staff would be up here by now wait, waiting to watch everyone go off and um, ground crew they've got nothing more to do people start to gravitate towards watching this happen and then up goes that flare and that first the brakes go off on the first aircraft and it starts to slowly move down the, the runway and then builds up speed builds up speed in it you just see the tail lift and then the aircraft lifts itself and away it goes then the next one and then the next one and then the next one imagine watching that until there are none left and you can see them all disappearing from view and the noise receding as well and suddenly it's like we are now it's quiet and what we're going to try and do now is explain how they form the combat box which is a fighting formation in the sky it's going to be quite a difficult job to do this on a podcast because we've got sound only and this is essentially a 3d formation so we're going to build a box so let's talk about one combat box and just to explain the purpose of a combat box is multifold the first point is that the aircraft fly in formation and uh, and uh, 
mutually support each other. So the Flying Fortress and the, and the Liberator are all designed with so many weapons so that they, as they fly together, the more the merrier. So that if you get a, a, a formation together of 12 aircraft, you know, the, all of their guns can overlap and, look, and they can support each other. So a fighter flying into the formation, attacking one bomber, is, is being fired back at by 10 or 11 or even 12 bombers if, if they get it right in the box. It's also important over the target because when you get there, you want precision bombing is what we're about with the 8th Air Force. So the tighter the box, the closer the aircraft are together, at the point of release when they drop the bombs, the tighter the fall of the bombs will be and the target area will be much, much reduced so the bombs don't scatter uselessly and miss the target. So it's a really key part of 8th Air Force doctrine is how, how, they, how they go about the business. But... To build that box, it, it's quite an art, and that's why they spend so much time flying around the UK, flying in formation and practicing how you do that. Because you're trying to fly hundreds of multi-engined aircraft in close formation, as close as you physically can, safely without crashing into each other, and maintain that formation against the wind, the weather, flak, enemy fighters. So it's something you, you can't just do off the cuff. You've got to practice, 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 and they do that. So a green light or a green flare will go up and the first plane will take off. And as it's doing that, the next plane will yeah. follow. So whatever, whatever the interval has been set by the briefing, having done all that work, you know, the interval is how quickly can we get everyone into the air so that they're in the circuit over the airfield so they can assemble over the airfield as a squadron and then fly off to join the, the combat box. So let's just say for argument's sake, it's one minute intervals. So first B-17 rolls off, the lead aircraft mission leader sets off, then, then a minute later another one, another one, and, and they all go because they're already in the right order. So in theory, they should all arrive at the assembly point at this, in the right order. That doesn't always happen, particularly with poor visibility, people get out of sequence. So that's where aircraft numbers and things like tail numbers and bomb group emblems really do come in as visual reference for that because we're not talking on the radio because it's a radio silence. So they're flying off each airfield has a three-dimensional box of airspace above it, which is its, its control zone. And they can assemble in that area or they can go off towards the big assembly area and assemble in a, over a reference point and do that. Once the formation leader is satisfied, and he's got to do it by a certain time, he's got everyone or as many as he's going to get into his formation, he then heads off to the next assembly area. And you might see an assembly ship there which is a very, very brightly painted aircraft, which is not going on the mission, but is there at the right point with a good navigator flying around. So everyone goes, ah, that's the assembly ship for our group. We know that because ours is white with red dots or yellow with green stripes or whatever it is. Uh, so we, we, we know where we should be in relation to other people. So you're looking left, right, up and above, and you see the, the tail letters on, you think, oh, that's my group. Yeah, and you've all got to formate on each other and get into those boxes. So one combat box. Then you've got to fly off from there to more towards the target and join up with the other combat boxes that make up the group, that make up the wing, that make up the division. And you're going to have low, medium, high. Everyone needs to know where they are. And, and, and you've practised this till the cows come home. The only variable for you as a, as a bomb group is where are you in the big formation? Are you the tail, the front, low, middle or high? Where are you in that formation? And that's given to you in the field order. So you, you fly to where you need to be. Weather's good, visibility's good. It's a difficult task as it is, but imagine doing it in low cloud, mist, 
rain or whatever it's, it's quite a challenging thing to do and and it was challenging wasn't it easier to do when the weather's good but not so easy when it's foggy when there's low cloud and when there are a lot of other planes trying to do the same thing and there were collisions there were accidents yeah there were numerous collisions uh, and um, a lot of people a lot of casualties are taken in, in that period of formating because it's it's a dodgy business and we talked about rain and visibility and cloud it's also wind you know and all of this activity is burning fuel and if you're on a long run mission you know deep into nazi germany you need every liter every every ounce of fuel you can milk out of that aircraft so you don't want to be burning it trying to formate and get it wrong or trying to find the assembly ship you want to get that right it needs to be literally a drill so everyone knows what they're doing and and also in the cockpit if we zoom in on the two the pilot and the co-pilot in the cockpit they've got to match throttles and keep the engines working right keep the aircraft in trim so it's not bobbing around in the formation because that affects other people and you're getting the turbulence from other aircraft in front of you uh, and that can be quite unpleasant that can be very dangerous as well so you do need to be in the right place at the right time and capable of doing that and, and the relationship between the two pilots is critical because if one's flying the aircraft the other one is matching the throttles and the turbochargers and keeping the, it all nice and even and steady as, as little variation as possible because otherwise it just becomes a vicious circle you're doing that all the time and you're again expending fuel needlessly but the thing is that um the weather is as important at this stage as it is over the target. Of course, the primary aim is to drop bombs accurately and you need clear visibility to do that. But if you're going to drop bombs accurately, you need to be in a box. If you're going to drop bombs without being interfered with by the enemy, you need to be in a box. So the cornerstone of American thinking of this is we've got a flying fortress, we've got the Liberator, it's armed to the teeth. It's not carrying as big a bomb load as Lancaster, but it's going to get there. And the reason it's going to get there is because before the days of fighter escort, it's the mutually supported tight box, a forest of fire, an absolute porcupine of machine guns. That, and you see the German after-action reviews where they say, where is the weak spot on these, on these formations? And you, you're flying into hundreds of machine guns, you know, a, a bomb group of four squadrons or three squadrons. It's got hundreds of machine guns. So if you're a German pilot, you need to know what you're about. And... The other thing about combat boxes is you read all of the accounts of the German pilots flying alongside these formations out of range for quite some time studying the layout of the formation. And what they're looking for is a weak spot. They're looking for that squadron or that bomb group that's not very tight in its formation or that aircraft that's that's damaged and is disrupting a formation. They're looking for a gap, Uh, almost like a, a cavalryman trying to charge a square of infantry. You're looking for a gap that you can break in or or in some cases, you can they could they say they could they could spot a new group because the formation wasn't as tight. So it really is critical to success. So that's the combat box formed. The planes are away. What's going on back at the airfield? Well, it's a funny period, isn't it? Because everyone's done all that they can. The guys have gone off. They're they're off to their muster point. I suppose there's a little bit of initial tension thinking any aircraft are going to turn back because there are reserve aircraft. So some aircraft are going to come back. You fly as a reserve sometimes, a nominated reserve, where if when they get to the assembly area, somebody goes unserviceable with one engine problems or oxygen not working, that peels away, and the reserve, reserve aircraft fills the slot. So we always talk about this silence, but there will be an aircraft or two that is going to come back and land. But everyone else is wondering what's going to happen. They're going to be here for the duration. The mechanics have got no aircraft to work on. They've all gone, unless they're in deep service. 
the chaplain's going to be around, the planning staff are here, waiting to hear, really, that some indication that the mission is gone. They're on their way. And that's it. They don't know then. You're now waiting. And they often talk, all the accounts talk about sweating it out. The bomb guys, the armourers, the fuel guys, the Red Cross girls. Everyone who's involved in not flying and generating the mission has done their bit and they've just got to sit and wait and ponder as to, will it be successful? How many are going to come back? We mentioned earlier on in the episode, Mike, that when the crew spotted Framlingham Castle, they would think, we're almost home. We did say almost. Downstairs in the museum, there's the remains of a B-17 engine from a plane that didn't make it. Let's go and have a look at that. Yeah. Mike, in front of us is a very mangled engine from a B-17 flying fortress, which almost but not quite made it home. Yeah, and if ever you wanted a tangible piece of archaeology that really tells you the story. I mean, look at this engine. It's, it's a battered engine. The propeller blades are bent back and twisted. And it's um, it's it's the remnants of um, Captain Hutchinson's aircraft. And this, this story is on the 21st of February, 1944. And Hutchinson is flying with his crew and an extra person because there's 11 air people on his aircraft. He's got a, a Sergeant Cregan on board who's a photographer. And he's on board specifically to photograph the crew's reaction to completing their 25th mission. So they're on their way back from a milk run over northern France, uh, going back to their home airfield, which is Great Great Ashfield. They're over Norfolk. And the eyewitness accounts talk about undercast, so low cloud. And they're trying to descend through the cloud to get down to an altitude to, to land. And Hutchinson is the centre aircraft. He's the element lead of the three aircraft which make up the element. So three aircraft going into the undercast and two come out. So as, as two of the three aircraft emerge from the undercast out of the cloud, they can see each other, they're still in a very tight formation. The right-hand aircraft is, is missing, Lieutenant Pease. And in the left-hand aircraft, the account says that they could see Hutchinson had taken a cigar out of his pocket and was celebrating completion of 25 missions. There's been no fighters, very light flak. They're over Norfolk, they're on the home leg, and it, everything's fine and dandy, and he's thinking, I've made it. At that point, the tragedy occurs where Lieutenant Pease's aircraft comes storming through the cloud at full power and crashes into Hutchinson's aircraft. And both aircraft takes the tail off Pease's aircraft. His aircraft goes spiralling to the ground and Hutchinson's aircraft goes straight down after him. 21 aircrew, all killed in one single incident. And that's tragedy enough. But to think that everyone on Hutchinson's aircraft, all 11 people thought, done it. He's done his 25 missions. We're done home and dry, let's relax, a few beers tonight and let's go out and celebrate and we're going home to the States. And it wasn't to be. And it just really, really emphasises the point that of just how dangerous life was as aircrew in the Mighty Eighth. And it wasn't just the flak and it wasn't just the fighters. It could happen to you at any time and it really was a dangerous game. For the ones that didn't make it, how was that managed? So there's that hole, obviously, where everyone's watched that mission go out and everyone's counted the aircraft coming back in and there are big gaps and every aircraft is 10 less faces at breakfast the next morning or whatever analogy you want to use but that has to be dealt with and dealt with quickly because there could be another mission tomorrow and the next day and the loss of so many people it, it has a real impact on on morale so there's lots of banter about this sort of thing at the time where when new guys arrive and say what size shirt are you and if you don't make it I'm going to have your stuff or what size boots are you but if, if a crew is confirmed is killed in action and is not coming back then their the bed space their 
and their personal effects need to be cleared away quickly. And the practicalities of letters to next of kin will follow, the chaplain getting involved and all that kind of thing. If they've been killed in a crash, obviously there's a burial. But even so, their effects are going to be sent back. So somebody, usually one of the clerical staff, you know, one of the one of the office, ground officers will come in here and take away any personal effects, pictures off the wall, and they would sanitise their stuff because these guys have been having a good time in their, in their downtime, living as much of a life as they can. So what you do, the last thing you want to do is send home something that's going to really upset the family, personal photographs, personal letters, etc. Having been checked over would be repatriated back to the family and the rest of it needs to be cleared away for the new guy who's arriving probably that night or the next day to take that bed space so it's quite a it's quite a difficult thing to do but it, it's done for good reason because as i say it's the reality of war and life has to go on and the last thing you want to be is that new waste gunner or that new navigator arriving that night by truck from the local railway station and being told there's your bed space and finding the human trace or footprint of the previous occupant there you know and uh, so it's very important as a as a management of morale, an, an operational output, as they would call it, to make sure that this is done quickly, sympathetically and robustly. And, and in the aftermath, the chaplain can write a letter, the commanding officer can write a letter uh, back to the family, and uh, the stuff can be packaged up and sent back. Now, no visit to Parham Air Museum would be complete without a visit to the Chapel of Remembrance. Jenny Smith, you're the archivist here at Parham. What we're looking at here is... A very special project for you, Faces of the Fallen. Explain that to me. Uh, Well, when I first came here, there's a wall that has all the names of the boys that were killed in action. But I wanted to know what they looked like, and I wanted people to see actually how young they were. And I call them my boys because they were boys. So I have spent the last five, six years researching every single one who was killed in action, and if I could find a picture... Um, We've done a montage of over 300 of the faces and it's quite moving when you see people looking at it because they obviously see how young young they were. It is moving, isn't it? There's a story there behind each of those faces. Yes, Um, and I try and find out that story, so I try and find their draft record and the missing aircrew report which tells me what happened to the plane and the draft records are actually really interesting because on the back page you get how tall they were what color their eyes were what color their hair was if they've got any distinguishing marks so that again gives you um, a mental picture of what they were like how long did it take you to do well my when i started off my project wasn't to do this it was to just research the boys but as i was researching them and found all the records um, the idea of this came into my head so I've been researching them probably for seven six seven years maybe and in touch with the families back home in America if I can um, I find a lot on sort of ancestry and Facebook and things and if I can reach out to them sometimes they'll send me photographs um, or they'll ask if I can find out what actually happened to their grandfather or or father and if I can help I will and for those who did come back, we've got a veterans' wall here as well. We have, yes. So if any veteran of the 8th Air Force comes back, we ask them to sign the wall. And they had a reunion here, I can't remember what year, but that's where a lot of the names were. The latest name is right over in the corner, um, and it's a Harold Gary. He served in the American Navy, but his brother flew from here. Um, and he came here a few months ago to see where his brother flew from because his brother was killed 
1944. Um, and Harold came to see where his brother had flown from, and he was 101, but he wanted to make it here, and he did. So we've got Harold on the veteran's wall and his brother on your faces of That's the fallen right. montage. Yeah, yeah, there's Harold, that little... Yeah, he's oh, yeah, on the 4th yeah. of June, 22, Harold's going. Yeah. yeah. Jenny, thank you. Pleasure. So, Mike, that just about wraps up our visit to Parham Air Museum. It's a fantastic place. What a great time. I, I thoroughly recommend it to anybody who's, who wants to know a bit more about the 8th Air Force in general or, or the 390th. It's, uh, it's certainly, as I said at the, at the start, one of my favourites, and uh, there's lots to see here. And, you know, you could spend a whole day here and still not see it all. And they all have something special, don't they? All of these, all of these museums, they all have a unique story to tell in their own way. Yes, they do. And um, it's down to these volunteers who really bring it to life. And today we've had such a good time talking to the volunteers here. And we've seen the mundane thing about uh, preservation, them painting the tower and, and keeping things up to, up to get it through the winter, to get it ready for another season in April when it opens again. You know, what a dedicated bunch they are and uh, as are all of these Bond Group museums and I thoroughly recommend them I go out to one every Sunday somewhere to go somewhere to, and you, you always learn something and it really is the human story that really brings it home to you really and, and they're, they're all so well presented the human story indeed well that's it for this episode of the Mighty Eighth Podcast with me Johan Tasker and military historian Mike Peters do subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and do if you can leave us a five-star review it spreads the word and it makes it easier for other people to listen to us as well but that's it for now from Parham Air Museum in Suffolk I'm Johan Tasker goodbye I'm Mike Peters goodbye <laughs>